As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And welcome to Power Hour. It's Chris Benini, Nicole Auerbach. Excited to be with you. As a reminder, be sure to follow this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcast. Drop us a five-star review. Leave a question with your review, and we will answer it on the show. Also, a reminder to subscribe to Until Saturday on YouTube because we go live every Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday throughout the season as we preview, react to the weekend's games, and hear from you, the listeners, on our Sunday Sound Off stream. If you are more interested in the written word, you can sign up for the Until Saturday newsletter, where you'll get your daily fill of college football news right into your inbox. You can also check out our official visit series on the Athletics official YouTube channel. Max and Ari did a fantastic job going to five of the best college towns in the country and really eating their way through said college towns. It's 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 worth your time. Uh, but this is Power Hour, and Chris, it is already October somehow, which is wild to me. We're going to get college football playoff rankings by the end of the month, although I have no idea who's going to get them. But here we are. Season is ramping up. Yeah, it's it's finally feeling like fall. Maybe not quite here in Texas where it's still 90 degrees, but is it fall in Chicago at this point? Are leaves starting Um, to come down? So the leaves have not changed yet, and it's like 80 degrees today, but I will tell you it's going to be in the 40s on the weekend. And I believe it's going to be in the 40s in Minnesota for the Little Brown Jug game. So we are hitting some fall weather for football season in Big yeah. Ten country. It's going to hit the 60s here in Texas. It's going to be perfect weather for Texas, Oklahoma on Saturday at the State Fair. I'm going to be there very excited and very excited for that weather. Well, uh, what about for the food? What is what is like the number one thing you're going to want to eat? Well, I always get, we'll get into it a little bit later too, but I always get some deep fried Oreos. Sam mm. and Max did a really good uh, State Fair of Texas draft. I think it was a draft of food earlier on your on, on the feed here. So check that out if you haven't uh, uh, very experienced when it comes to the State Fair of Texas. All right. Well, I wanted a little more detail, Chris, but I will settle for photos and tweets about what you're eating at the State Fair later this weekend. That is a monster game. Cannot wait. We will discuss it later in the show, but we're going to start, as we always do, with the Power Five. Um, 
the idea of this segment was that it would be a little bit power hour style. We talk about something for about a minute and then buzz, move on to the next. Well, it always goes a little bit longer than a minute, but I still like to present it as such. Um, Chris, I'm going to let you get us started here with number one. Number one, USA Today on Tuesday released its annual college football coaching salary database with the uh, salary bonuses buyout estimation of almost every FBS head coach. It's an annual thing that they do. They put a lot of work. It's always a very valuable tool. And every year there are certain things that stick out to us, uh, certain things that really kind of tell you where the business of college sports is. Nicole, what jumped out to you in terms of this database and, and some of the coaching salaries? Yeah, well, you know, I think we've become so accustomed to to the numbers overall, but it's still pretty stunning to see how many coaches are making more than $9 million a year. 10? Like, you have to dip below the top 10. And it's James Franklin at 8.5. So, I mean, you're still you're still making a lot of money. So these these are big dollar figures. Uh, Mel Tucker jumps out as you look at it. He's listed as number five. We know that there is a lot still to be determined there as he is certainly suggesting and threatening legal action against Michigan State. We'll see how much money he is able to get back, if any, as they have fired him for cause. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a lot of the schools that you would expect. We talk a lot about, you know, the, the finances and sort of like the business of college sports. Well, it's a lot of SEC and big 10 schools. That's for sure. Yeah. And, and some PAC 12 ones jump out the PAC 12, like for people who don't look at this every year, they are always the lowest paid power five conference. And you're always kind of surprised at some schools outside of like David Shaw at Stanford and maybe what USC pays. Um, but there are a lot of coaches on here. Kalen DeBoer makes $4.2 million, seventh among Pac-12 coaches. Wow. He is, what, 16-2 and two there since he got the job? Um, he, he It's only in his, what, second year there now? And obviously that could come with more future raises for a guy who came from Fresno State. But you look at the some of the first-year coaches are very inexperienced coaches uh, who are getting these big salaries early on. But the biggest thing to me is that these numbers just increase every single year. And you mentioned it. There are at least 10 coaches earning at least $9 million. Three years, I'm sorry, two years ago, there were three. Like this, this, it just continues to get exponentially higher and higher every single year. And whether that's Kentucky's coach, Mark Stoops makes $9 million. He ain't winning the SEC anytime soon. He's got probably the, the, the safest job in the country, but Kentucky wanted to hold on to him. Michigan State wanted to hold on to Mel Tucker. And then you've got coaches like Kirby Smart and Ryan Day who aren't going anywhere, but they can't be lower paid than than Mel Tucker can, right? I mean, just based on accomplishments. Yep. And so you get these sometimes artificially inflated salaries. And it also obviously happens because players do not make money uh, from the schools, So the money's got to go somewhere. With the more TV money coming into the Big Ten, the SEC in the future, those numbers are going to keep going up. Yeah, I uh, I agree with all of that. It is kind of stunning to see once someone gets a raise or resets the market, and then where you see those first first time head coaches coming in. I mean, you know, Brent Venables jumps out here, seven point one. It's a first time head coach, right? But that's that's the salary mm-hmm. that he starts at because of what the going rate is. Um, and so I would definitely say that Kalen DeBoer is one of the biggest steals as you look at that 
salary compared to the success and the expectations we have for this Washington team this year. Um, I, I would also mention, and USA Today characterized him as a steal as well, um, or or that he's underpaid or, or however you want to describe it. Deion Sanders, $5.5 million? I mean, certainly worth that, I would say, considering well, everything that he has brought to, to Colorado. I mean, how many FCS head coaches get hired to a Power 5 job and immediately make five Point five million dollars, probably not. But they a lot. Did, so like they didn't, they didn't even have the money, right? Well, that was the other thing. Remember, Colorado said they, in some sort of way, they didn't quite have the money yet. But yeah, uh, based but on everything it, Deion Sanders has brought, they probably do now. It was worth it, absolutely. All right, number two in the Power Five. So we do our Heisman straw poll. We started last week, so we gave it a couple weeks to get a little bit of a data dump here and um, some interesting names this week. So the top three, not surprising. We're going to see a lot of Pac-12 quarterbacks on this list all year. So Caleb Williams, number one, Michael Penix Jr., number two, Bo Nix, number three. Number four, on the heels of him, I think we can say single-handedly winning the game, Brock Bowers, then Cam Ward, then Quinn Ewers. So then we go back to quarterbacks. Uh, Luther Burden, by the way, gets some votes. He finishes 10th place. Ray Davis, after a career day for Kentucky, at number 11. But the rest is quarterbacks. This is very high for Brock Bowers. He's someone we had talked about last year when we talked about non-quarterback Heisman contenders. He was drafted in our draft before the season. Chris, I know it's October 3rd as we're recording this. Happy Mean Girls Day to everyone, by the way. Do you think that a tight end can actually win this thing? Can a tight end get to New York? Oh, get, get to New York, absolutely. Uh, win it. I don't think so because I just think there's so many quarterbacks who put up such unreal numbers nowadays. It's hard for anybody who's not a quarterback to win it. Devonte Smith won it, but he did it behind a quarterback who put up gigantic numbers. Anyway, my, my ballot here, we only get three because that's how the actual Heisman ballot goes. I was uh, Caleb Williams, one Michael Penix two cam ward three, the same, same three that I had. Same. I, it's the same three that we had last week as well. No, no also notable in here, uh, Shador Sanders dropped out. He was seventh in our staff poll last week, got three third place votes and got no, uh, nothing this week, even though he, in the end, put up good numbers against USC by the end. You but know what? I, I, like you said, yeah. You know what? That might that might be more about, I think, probably our entire staff's disgust for USC's defense than it is more. <laughs> that is true. That that may be why Caleb uh, Williams jumped up to number one, too. Because also of true. Has to work there. But yeah, I, I like seeing Tyler Van Dyke, Luther Burden at uh, Missouri wide receiver getting some love uh, since it's early in the year. Number three, uh, Trent Dilfer, former NFL quarterback, ESPN analyst, now the head coach at UAB, had a uh, bit of a viral moment on Saturday, uh, setting the scene. There's a big fourth and two. Uh, UAB is down 28 20 to Tulane, fourth quarter, fourth and two. UAB's defense. 12 guys on the field. They get penalized, automatic first down. Trent Dilfer flips out, and he's yelling into the headset, yelling at one of his assistants on the field, like really kind of over the top a bit. And because he's Trent Dilfer, uh, got a lot of people talking. It was a topic on first take and stuff like that uh, as well. And Dilfer uh, was asked about it this week at his press conference. And he said, quote, I'm regretful about it. I'm a passionate guy. Anybody that's been around me uh, will tell you I'm a passionate person. Sometimes that passion comes out in ways that I'm not proud of. 
that's a moment I'm not proud of, unquote. He also said, look, I wasn't just mad at one coach. I was mad at everybody. Um, but sometimes uh, it was a bit over the top. And he says that one was over the top and I regret it. Uh, Nicole, did you see this on Saturday amidst everything going on on a busy Saturday? Uh, this this jumped out. UAB was winning this game 20 to 7 at one point, ended up losing. Uh, yeah, I this I is was the thing not, people talked about. Yeah, I didn't catch it live, um, but I think that it went viral very quickly. So definitely became on the radar. And, you know, I think it's it that it, it gets added to, you know, a folder of sideline antics and um, Trent Dilfer emotional responses to things. And I think that's the problem, right, is that, you know, this was not one off. And I'm glad he apologized. I'm glad he said that. You you can't do that. And you can't do that as the head coach. Your job is to, yes, you get heated. Yes, you get emotional. We've seen coaches do that. You really can't act like that in the middle of a game. Yeah, what you're referencing, 2021, when he was a head coach at Lipscomb Academy, the high school outside of Nashville, um, he basically kind of pulled a kid and really yelled at him in his face, a clip yeah, of it that was went bad. on TikTok or Twitter or something. And basically, he released kind of a similar statement at the time when that happened, uh, said he didn't handle it the right way. It wasn't exactly an apology, but but said he didn't handle it the right way. Similar along this one. I will say, one week after we had the Notre Dame situation at Ohio State, to be caught in a big situation without the right number of people on the field, I understand why he was really mad. It was a big moment in the game at that point and you blow it because of improper number of kids out there like he had a right to be very very upset it about was that. and the only thing anyone talked about last week was having 11 right. men on the field at all times yes and this was yelling at coaches people who are paid to work for him this was not yelling at a kid which i think is a very different type of thing um so i understand why he was upset but it was a lot it was too much um, to go. It, it, you go too far with the stuff. You could be upset about it and, and rail into your coaches for that. But it did. It did go on for quite a while, too, uh, and stuff like that. So, you know, look, UAB, they're one and four right now. This is a program that is used to competing for conference championships. First year in the American. They were playing pretty well against a good Tulane team. Did it get it done at the end? Uh, you know, when, when you're a somewhat celebrity coach. There's going to be a lot more eyes on you. If this was the coach at Ewell Monroe or Troy or some Mac school, we wouldn't be talking. It wouldn't be being talked about on ESPN for that. So like Trent Dilfer has to know that the attention's on him uh, more than other coaches for that reason, because of who he is. And we'll see how UAB continues to do moving forward. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. 
Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Number four, some housekeeping with NCAA-related stuff. Um, let's start with what the NCAA put out on Tuesday. Um, they said there were unanimous vote to introduce several proposals for penalties focused on personal accountability in the infractions process. So these are penalties we're talking about. Um, these were things that they discussed. Publicly naming individuals involved in wrongdoing, which they don't do now, in creating a public database for coaches with a history of level one or level two violations, expanding coaching suspensions to include the days between contests, which would be relevant for something like what Jim Harbaugh experienced this year. He was able to coach. He just missed game days. Um, expanding disassociation penalties for boosters engaged in rules violations, which is timely with NIL issues. And then attaching penalties for schools that employ individuals during a show cause order changes could potentially take effect in January. So uh, this goes along with a lot of the trends we've seen from the NCAA about infractions and penalties is they're trying to go after the adults in the room and yes. the adults who make decisions. So they're, they were trying to penalize and name the adults who are making, you know, breaking the rules. And then they also adding penalties to the show cause is an interesting one, Chris, because Clearly, a show cause order is not deterring people from hiring these coaches. Mm. I mean, I think so. Not, a, not the, enough. Yeah, not enough. Right. I mean, you know, I think it's kind of like the idea of like, well, Will Wade got another job, but then was immediately suspended. Right. 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 It, it's things like that. There is some sort of penalty for taking someone who's known to have broken the rules. So that's interesting. Um, and then also, you know, I apologize if you're reading this and this has already become final and there's more clarity, but. We're recording this Tuesday night. Council is going to eventually put out information Wednesday after their day two of their meetings. They are expected to tackle transfer portal windows. Um, and I was told by the chair, Linda Teeler, that she's expecting that it will be closer to 30 than it is to the current 60 days per sport per year. The interesting thing is going to be, again, what the total number of days is that the portal is open. You do not have to find your landing spot by the time the portal closes, but you need to be in it. And we have seen and the NCAA has seen that the data shows that most athletes are entering the portal within the first five days because, yeah. again, they they knew during the season that this was something they wanted to do. So they were ready to get going and that that part will will obviously still happen. Basketball was a problem with 60 straight days. It was a really long period of time from March to May. So. Again, you got a lot of feedback from administrators, from coaches. The 60 days was kind of arbitrary to begin with, and they're going to change that. And then the interesting piece is going to be the way that they figure out which dates it's going to be open for each sport, um, especially with football, with December getting more and more crowded, especially with the expanded playoff next year. One other piece of information that we're expecting news on, which again, I apologize if it doesn't happen or if it's not exactly as I'm setting it up as you listen to this is initial counters. So that's the idea of like how how many new scholarship players you can add per year used to be a cap on 25 players. So that was incoming freshmen and also transfers. And you were capped at that. So even if you lost extra players to the NFL or to transferring out, you couldn't replace everybody. This is part of the reason that like Kansas was under the scholarship limit for a long time. Right. 
they couldn't really fully make it up. So anyway, they changed it. They had a waiver to say, all right, let's just try it out where you can just replace up until 85 scholarships for FBS. So you can replace everybody you lose. You lose transfers, you bring in transfers. And the expectation is that that will just not be a waiver. It will just be something that is permanently changed. Um, So again, those are expectations as we record this Tuesday night into Wednesday. But we do expect some movement in both areas on Wednesday. Yeah, to the last point about the caps on class sizes, basically. They said, like, remember, because it was a hard 25, and then they said, all right, you can lose up to seven seven transfers, and you can replace that many extra spots. And then they were just like, all right, we'll just, it's totally open, give it two years, see how it goes. And they said at the time, we're going to see, we're going to monitor, like, our teams running off more players than usual as we kind of make a determination on this. So, if if you think the Deion Sanders roster overhaul uh, could continue to happen, this is a rule that will continue to let it happen as well for, for all places. You're going to see a lot more roster overhaul as you've seen recently. And uh, number five, a look at the schools that pop out as I ranked all 133 teams. Uh, you also ranked the top 10 teams on Saturday night. And both of us, we both agree, Georgia, not number one anymore. I've got Texas. You've got Florida State. I make the Texas for uh, the case for Texas as they have the best win in the country at Alabama, and they've been pretty dominant ever since and blew out Kansas on Saturday. I know Jalen Daniels didn't play. I don't think it would have made a difference. I considered waiting for this upcoming Oklahoma game before I pull the trigger or not on Texas, but I couldn't defend having Georgia at number one anymore. Uh, and you clearly have have felt that for a while after Georgia barely escaped uh, Auburn. So how, what, what, how do you kind of feel about that number one spot right now? I think you can make a case for a number of different schools. I really do. Um, like, you know, people play different enough schedules, but there's enough teams that have impressive wins. There's enough teams that have some flaws or some questions. Honestly, I think you could pick anyone from like one through eight and make a case. I would really not have much of a problem. I do think if Texas beats Oklahoma, that will be your number one team in the country in the AP poll because a lot of AP voters were starting to move their first place votes away from Georgia. A lot of them went to Michigan and then the second most amount went to Texas. So that's going to be something uh, to follow and I actually want to use that as a segue into our open bar segment. This is where we answer questions that you guys send to us. Just a reminder, every Monday, Tuesday, there will be a link on The Athletic. It's calling for questions for a mailbag for Chris and myself. It's for Power Hour. It's for this segment. We will answer them on air. So we usually pick about three. Um, I want to start with this one because it's exactly relevant to what we just were talking about from Chris M., how much weight do you think the AP and the coaches poll voters are still giving to preseason rankings? How much weight do you give them? I feel like if a team is ranked before the season, as long as they win ugly or not, they get reevaluated. I think, or sorry, he said they never get reevaluated. I completely agree. I think that this is ingrained in a lot of voting for a lot of things. And this has been the biggest source of frustration for me in the playoff era because what we see this happen every single year where AP and coaches poll voters don't really drop teams unless they lose a game, which is very much old school way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Then the playoff starts doing their rankings in a few weeks midseason, 
And then all that ends up happening is the AP and the coaches polls just start matching the <laughs> rankings. So yeah. that's where they'll fix it if they are not dropping the right teams. And year one, when we went through this with FSU being undefeated and the CFP not putting them in that number one spot in this in season should have started to get people out of this habit. You do not need to keep the team at number one just because they haven't lost. Georgia has not looked the part. They have not played a complete game. They've had some really slow starts. They've needed heroics to stay undefeated. And a lot of these other teams have actually played good opponents. You don't have Mm -hmm. to keep them there because you could make a case for Texas. You could make a case for FSU based on just resume. You could say Washington's look the part most of the time. No one, you know, if you didn't stay up and watch the game in the desert on Pac-12 Network, that's fine. But you could, like, the only other team you would maybe have a little bit of a problem with, although Michigan has played a complete game and looks better, is Michigan, right? Because you'd be like, yeah, they haven't played anybody either. But there are lots of teams that have resumes worthy of bumping them above Georgia. And so I think that's exactly what's happening right now is people just not reevaluating, not dropping them until they lose a game when you don't have to do that. Like part of what I like about doing the top 10, which is a little bit more based on vibes than your poll, your one to one thirty three, is like it can change week to week. You can move them up. You can move them down. I, I put Michigan above Georgia this week because they looked a lot better and I have more faith in them if they were to line up tomorrow. So I don't know why people are doing this. I thought that we should break out of this habits and yet we have not. And it bothers me every single year. I, I have two theories on why that is remains the case. Number one, a lot of these writers are at games. They're not sitting on their couch watching every game like we do most weeks. So they don't say everything. You check the box score. Oh, they won their game. I'm not going to move them because we're busy on Saturday. So, so that is, that is part of it. Number two, the AP ballots are public and writers can get a lot of grief from certain fan bases for ranking certain teams in certain positions. Usually, and that would usually come moving somebody down after a loss. I can confirm this because I read the comments on the 133 every week. <laughs> People do not comment to say that they love the rankings and they thought I did a great job with it. So uh, you don't want to take the grief necessarily of moving Georgia away from number one because they haven't lost. I think that's part of it as well. I approach it as what have you done? Georgia hasn't done anything. Michigan still really hasn't done anything. So I don't have them in the top uh, three or four anymore. I've got Georgia down at four. Texas beat Al- Texas beat Alabama, Florida State beat Clemson and LSU, Ohio State beat Notre Dame. Like that's that's yeah. simply what yeah. it is to me. And, and, and you, some people don't want to make that change. You have all of that. Like in a lot of years, you don't have all of those data points. And we had them all early. We made a big deal about that. Having all these big games in September. So it's easy to make the point. You're either still putting Georgia at one or you have them at like four or five because you have to either treat yeah. those three teams the same and say the resume matters or that you just believe in Georgia back to back national champs. They'll figure it out. You believe there's enough talent there. So you're just keeping them there. And that's, I think, one of the justifications as well. Um, Chris, I'll read you the second question, but I want you to take this one first. This is from Robert T. It's about Michigan State and the coaching search. Uh, I know we talked about this a little bit, but this is going, this is the biggest job that's open right now. No other head coaching jobs except Northwestern are 
in a search right now. So we'll, we'll answer this. We saw how good Michigan State was under Coach Antonio, Robert T. says. It was a program that earned the right to be considered among the best in college football during the stretch from 2010 to 2015. Now, the program is in a different spot, but there is recent history that shows the program can be great. What is the ceiling of the program if everything goes right? The higher works, the recruits come, and the culture is set like D'Antonio had it. Is this a program that can actually compete for national titles, or is their ceiling limited to, quote, potentially once every five years, Big Ten champ, end quote? Well, I don't think potentially once every five years, Big Ten champ is necessarily a bad thing, considering you're typically Ohio State or Michigan is winning the conference. I, I think... Michigan State's history, even recent history, shows they don't recruit at the level to be more than a once every five years Big Ten champ, which again is not a bad place to be. And to be clear, our colleague Ari Wasserman doesn't think Michigan recruits at the level to be a consistent national championship contender either. He doesn't think in the long term it's working, even though the last couple of years have been good. So actually compete for national championships. Probably not, because I think there's only three or four teams that can do that. And that and that's okay. Like Mel Tucker came in and again, making $10 million, but he wasn't bringing in top 10 recruiting classes. He wasn't bringing in top 15 recruiting classes. They were recruiting around number 25, which was like a little bit better than what Mark D'Antonio was doing. And when you don't have the player development that you had under Mark D'Antonio, you're not going to get top 10 finishes like you got under Mark D'Antonio. So if everything goes right, this is a team that should recruit top 20 recruiting classes and probably finish in the top 20, top 15 with a couple of years in the top 10. That's not a bad thing. Uh, you know, like we've talked about the potential coaches who fit here. Mike Elko, Jake Dicker, Jonathan Smith, Sean Lewis, Lance Leipold, like those aren't necessarily coaches you think are going to win a college football national championship. Now, maybe you go on a TCU Sunny Dykes type of run every once in a while. But uh, no, I, I, as someone who's been around the Michigan State program for a very long time, as someone who's an alum there uh, of there and, and been around there for a long time, uh, I, I don't think it's in place to compete for national championships, but I don't think that's a bad thing. I also think we're going to watch as the sport evolves in the 12 team playoff era and super conferences and see that success is defined differently. Like it's going to be really, really hard to get to a big 10 championship game when you add yes. USC, UCLA, Oregon and Washington. So that's going to be a massive achievement. There's going to be multiple playoff spots for the big 10 and for the sec. That's going to be a massive achievement to get them. So like some of those benchmarks are, are just, I think fundamentally going to change in, in the way that we see what is a successful season. Okay. Last question in the open bar from Aaron B. Um, I'll answer this one first. Uh, why is there not more buzz around Miami? They haven't played anybody besides Texas A&M, but they've handled business in every game. Feels like the hype train in any other season would have made them a top 10 team by now. Actually a very fair question because Miami is usually one of those teams that we talk about. Are they back? Are they not mm -hmm. back? Um, they're usually under a microscope quite a bit. I think that what happened with Colorado and Deion Sanders was so far beyond just college football hype and sports hype that crossed over, right? We've talked about it being like a Good Morning America story, not just a sports story. I think that sucked all of the oxygen out of the room. And then it naturally led to a lot of conversations about the strength of the Pac-12 and the quarterbacks in that league, how fun it is to watch that. 
I think in the ACC, a lot of the preseason hype went to FSU, and then they backed it up by beating LSU and Clemson in the first month of the season, so they got a lot of attention. Duke got a lot of hype. They got to host game day for the first time. So even within their own league, they were getting a little bit pushed to the back burner because those teams, um, you know, I mentioned this earlier as well, like one of the cool things about this season and again, FSU winning, but then Texas beating Alabama is some of these blue bloods are quote back or they're nationally relevant or they're nationally title contenders or conference title contenders. So you have a lot of buzz about Texas and what they did by beating Alabama. USC is good, and I mean, I just can't talk about him without talking about the defense being bad, but you have that. You have Michigan, Ohio State, Notre Dame. Ohio State, Notre Dame was a massive game. There's just a lot of big names and brands sucking up a lot of oxygen, even outside and beyond Colorado. So I think that's part of it, and just the factors within their own league about FSU. To, to me, the we haven't talked about Miami just because they haven't played anybody other than Texas A&M, and we're not sure if Texas A&M is any good. The other games that Miami has played are Miami of Ohio, Bethune, Cookman, and Temple. There was not a reason to pay attention to any of those games. So we saw Miami play pretty well against Texas A&M, but we also kind of came away from that game thinking Texas A&M be maybe kind of a mess. And so it just hasn't happened yet. So we just kind of got to wait for Miami to play some more teams. They've got Georgia Tech uh, this week. Again, not much of anything, but then you've got North Carolina, Clemson, uh, Louisville, Florida State, all these games to end the season. We'll talk more about Miami. Tyler Van Dyke, again, in our Heisman straw poll, but there's just, you haven't played anybody other than the Texas A&M team everybody's kind of down on. So I think that's my theory on on Miami right now. Yeah, and, and listen, if A&M actually, I, like, I actually think their offense might work like this. It might be better with Max Johnson. Yeah, and so if if that in the Fisher Petrino marriage, if that continues looks good, like we will then be adding that to Miami's resume as a big feather in their cap. Um, but I agree. I don't think I, I think they're a little bit just waiting in the wings. And like I said, I just think there's been a lot going on with a lot of big names like Deion Sanders. So yeah, it's nothing about Miami. It's really about everyone else. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's move over to our happy hour segment. This is the part of the show we talk about something we are super excited about, something that brings us joy. Chris, you mentioned this earlier. You teased it earlier. This is something you will be at. So let's talk Red River rivalry game. Or Red River shootout it used to be. I think they changed the name. It used to be Red River showdown. I think they just I gotta recently say, changed it again. Red River rivalry is really hard to say. So I miss the old names. Well, that's why it used to be the shootout. Um <laughs> I'm trying to, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it became the showdown in 2014. Yeah. Okay, so, so it's the shootout. No, this year and this year it's back to the Red River rivalry. So it's back to the RRR this year. Glad we got that uh, taken care of. But no, this is a monster game. Texas, Oklahoma, both of them are undefeated. 
Texas, we think is for real because they went and beat Alabama. Oklahoma, we don't know. I have a lot of questions about Oklahoma. I went and saw them play SMU in week two, and I came away from that game very concerned about Oklahoma. They were battled kind of evenly in the trenches against SMU. It was a one-score game into the fourth quarter before a couple of plays made it a 28-11 to final score. Outside of that, Oklahoma is averaging 47.4 points per game and allowing 10.8 points per game. Both of those are top four in the country. But again, they've only played Arkansas State, SMU, Cincinnati, Iowa State. They blew out Iowa State last week. So my biggest question coming into this game is, does Brent Venables have something in year two? You know, last year was a uh, uh, six and seven season. They lost Dylan Gabriel, their quarterback. It was kind of a mess for a while, but the defense was a problem too. It might be fixed this year, and we're going to get a real sense for the for the first time. What what are, what are your kind of biggest questions coming into this one? Most of my questions are about Oklahoma. I am a believer in Texas. I think that they showed us a lot against Alabama. I thought the way that they beat Kansas, even without Jalen Daniels, was impressive. Um, it, It's interesting, sort of, if you look at, like, I looked at them a lot on paper in the preseason. I was like, this is the year. Like, it's got to be this year if they're going to win – this conference or, you know, obviously it's going to get more, it's going to get harder when they go to the SEC, but it just felt like they, the talent was everywhere, but like I've been impressed by the line play. They've, they've had some slow starts and some, some weird games, but they've, they really took care of business against Kansas. Like they pulled away from a team that they were better than. And that's something that they didn't always do last year. I am fascinated by Oklahoma and having a measuring stick like this to see where they are better. They're definitely better defensively. And, you know, I was talking to some of my uh, radio co-hosts over at Sirius XM who are former players, and they were really just kind of emphasizing how complicated Brent Venable's defenses are and how, you know, players tend to play a lot better in them the second year that they're in there. And I think that's absolutely valid. But yeah, would like to see, you know, what the offense looks like, how they match up against a team that I think is the best team in the Big 12. and if Texas kicks care of business here, first of all, I do think it's very likely we'll see this rematch in the big 12 title game, but if Texas takes care of business, I'm comfortable possibly just penciling in them into the CFP. I'm going to knock on wood for our longhorn listeners, but the path really clears out. I I'm been unimpressed by the middle of the big 12 and especially the newcomers from, from the AAC. They've, they've been over so far. So, um, I, yeah, so that's kind of where I am. I, I got a lot more questions about Oklahoma and feel really good about Texas if they win this. Do you remember the score of the game last year? I was there. I barely remember Ooh. it. Oh, man. I do not remember it, the final. It was 49 to nothing. That they, was... They massacred them. That was, that was such a defining moment of Venables yeah. year one and the, and the disgust and the disdain and the uncomfortable feelings, everything about it. Um, but you and know Texas, what, Texas, yeah. I was going to say, you know what they did last year? They did stuff like that, and then they lost games they shouldn't. They lost three of their next four games. Yeah. <laughs> to or, sorry, sorry, three of their next seven games. They went four and three the rest of the year after that, after getting up. They were ranked number 22 and that happened. They lost to Oklahoma State, TCU, and Washington. Uh, so I don't think Texas is going to have that type of downfall. We've seen how they've followed up the Alabama win. And yeah, I, you know, I came out of that Oklahoma SMU game thinking this was going to be another Texas blowout. 
I'm, I don't know what the line is. I don't have it in front of me, but I would still be pretty favored on Texas here just because of what they've done and who they've done it against. Um, before we get out of happy hour here, while you were talking, I was pulling up the State Fair of Texas, some of the new foods this year. I just want to run them by you. Tell okay. me if they sound good to you. Let's go with the deep fried candy pecan bacon bread pudding. Uh, Let me so describe that, it. To, uh, I is can that describe liquidy it to you. in the middle or is that like a, how does that, is that going to be a solid? No, it, it's a solid. It, it, the recipe, okay. it's, here's what it says on the website. The recipe begins with making the perfect bread pudding, a marriage of French bread and perfect custard. Mm. After it cools, it's cut into bite-sized morsels. The bread pudding is placed in the fryer, starts to caramelize the edges. Ooh. Then it is tossed in a blend of cinnamon sugar and candy pecans. Uh, which are next okay, to that sounds crispy chopped bacon. Delicious. And that's kind of how they do like fried mac and cheese bites. Because again, like yes. how do you do it? So you make little bite-sized pieces. Okay, in on that. What else we got? Have you ever had deep fried sushi? No, but I'm not a sushi person. So that's going to be a no. I'm not either. Here. My wife is, but I, I'm not. I'm not. You bring, her, bring her some deep fried sushi. We got <laughs> some deep fried, deep fried Texas oatmeal pie. That Ooh, is an oatmeal yes. cream pie. Yes, yes, dipped yes. Into, dipped into sweet and fluffy Dr. Pepper flavored pancake batter and Why fried is, until is, it's golden brown. Is and then it's drizzled with some big is, red soda. Is this a Fansville thing? Like, where did that come from? Why is Dr. Pepper involved in this? Doc, oh, Dr. Pepper in Dallas and Texas is humongous. It's like based here. It like came out of here. Oh, or something like okay. That. Dr. Pepper right. is absolutely I everywhere would, here. I would try that, yes. Yeah. So, and, and how about this? A f- last one. Fried fireball shot. That's definitely a liquid. How's that one it's, working? It says, uh, the sweetness of angel food cake meets the red hot fiery cinnamon flavor of fireball cinnamon malt liquor, deep frying to a perfect golden brown fireball cinnamon poured over the top and into a shot glass. I would try that. I would You've try never that. been to the State Fair of Texas, correct? No, I would love to. That is one of those like bucket list games, Texas, Oklahoma. I know, I got of, it. I because gotta of where it, it is. It's like if you haven't been there, the Cotton Bowl Stadium is it's in the middle of a fairgrounds. Uh, and if it's not October, it's kind of creepy to be around there. But it is a wild scene. They cut the stadium in half, uh, red and red and orange on the sides. Um, very, very fun. Game day is going to be there. It's probably it's the biggest game of the weekend for sure. Looking forward to that. I'll be there. Sam Khan will be there. And we will make sure to take some pictures of the food we get yes, before kickoff. Yes, please do. I will. Uh... I will live vicariously through it. It's a happy hour for both of us, but a little bit happier for you. Time for our On the Rock segment. We always talk about something somewhere where there's some friction. And I mentioned this a little bit earlier. The head coaching jobs that are open are open for off-the-field reasons. We have not had a head coach fired for performance yet, but we have started to see coordinator moves. Indiana fired their offensive coordinator. Georgia Tech swapped demoted defensive coordinator and elevated one. Um, And really the question is, and Chris, I know you and I have been talking offline all week about this, about, you know, where there are some issues because, you know, coming into the season, hottest seat in the country would be Neil Brown at West Virginia. And they are playing well. They've won a lot of games. Then another hot seat or warmish seat, Eli Drinkwitz at Missouri. They are undefeated. As we mentioned, Luther Burden's been fantastic. He got some Heisman votes. They might be the second best team in the SEC East. We'll see. 
So if you take them out of the equation, uh, you know, Jeff Hafley struggled a bit at BC, but they're coming off a win over an ACC opponent. Indiana, again, made an offensive coordinator change. So I don't know if you think that that's going to be the band-aid as you give the head coach more time. Houston got some questions about. And San Diego State, which has just been a really rough season so far. So, Chris, uh, there's a lot of rocky options here. Um, so so where do you no, want to start? No pun intended either with Rocky Long, Rocky Long. the former head coach of San Diego I, State. It was happening as I was saying it, and I was like, you know, I know he's gonna he's gonna catch this. <laughs> of course I was gonna catch that. Look, San Diego State is in such a weird place right now. And it's every the way things have played out, you wonder if it's time for an overhaul. Go back six months. San Diego State feeling pretty good about itself, feeling like a Pac-12 invitation is coming. Everybody knows a Pac-12 invitation is coming. It just hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. San Diego State tries to preemptively negotiate its way out of the Mountain West, expecting it to come eventually. Then whoops, the Pac-12 dissolves. You're not getting that invitation. The Big 12 doesn't want you as as a backup plan uh, when they can get Pac-12 schools. And suddenly, you don't have that landing spot anymore. You're still in the Mountain West. Not only that, you're not 2-4 and this year. You just lost 49-10 to to Air Force. And you're continuing to play a pretty ugly style of football. And it makes me wonder again, if now is time for kind of an overhaul of what San Diego State has been. They've played this defense first, run the ball, very ugly style of football for a while now. And they did it because they were winning. They've won 10 games several times. They won conference championships. Heck, two years ago, they won 12 games and nearly won the Mountain West under Brady Hoke. But now... With, with the offense still being terrible, with the defense now finally slipping, with the Pac-12 invitation not coming, and with a brand new gorgeous stadium that you're struggling to fill, is it time to do something else? Is it time to look around and see all these big offenses you've got on the West Coast and feel like San Diego State needs to change now? Because uh, if it's not winning, you know, and that invitation's not coming... Do you consider a change? I'm not saying a midseason change right now or anything, but I'm wondering at the end of the year, like, is now the time for San Diego State to kind of start a new era? Well, it's an interesting question in part, and I know our friends over at Split Zone Duo have talked about this, like the style of play as well, right? You're trying to sell tickets. You're trying to fill a new stadium. And it's just not exciting. Not an exciting brand of football. It's not going to put butts in the seats and and so is losing that doesn't help either but like you know we we've talked a lot about trends in in hiring and there have been successful defensive minded head coaches but there's a reason that a lot of the offensive guys get these jobs get jobs like that um where you know you're trying to sell something you're trying to excite a fan base so that's going to be an interesting one i do think that a lot of the moves that we're tracking on right now feel like they are more maybe end of the season decisions even yeah. though you still have transfer portal windows that will start uh, that will open early in December. We last year, we saw a lot of movement well ahead of that so that there could be coaches in place in the first week in December. Maybe you think you can still do that, or you just are making firing decisions in November instead of October. Um, so I want to get your rundown on other maybe pressing questions or decisions, even if they might end up being end of the season decisions. Yeah, and with, with San Diego State, too, by the way, like a lot of people would want that job. It's in San Diego. You can get a lot of talent there. New stadium. You've got everything. They recruit well there. Um, 
So that is a place that would have a lot of interest. What what are the the other one I'm curious about is Indiana, which again just made an offensive coordinator change again. Walt Bell got fired. And it kind of feels like Indiana's in a spot where it has to determine how much of a priority football is going to be because Tom Allen's buyout is about $20 million this year. And it won't drop down to about eight or nine million December 1st, 2024. And it seems as more and more time goes by that that really good run for Indiana from 2019 to 2020 was anchored heavily by Kalen DeBoer as your offense coordinator that first year, now the head coach at Washington, quarterback Michael Penix Jr., also now at Washington, and defensive coordinator Kane Womack, who's now the head coach at South Alabama. Once those guys left, the bottom completely fell out on this program to, to the point where they are not even competitive against Maryland at this point. So like with the Big Ten expanding, with all these four teams coming in, Indiana's about to be at the bottom of an even bigger conference. And do you just accept that? I mean, if you're Indiana, do you say, like, all right, we're just, we're going to be the doormat of this conference and there's nothing we can really do about it? Or do you pull together a lot of money to fire a coach and hope the next guy is the guy, whether that's Kane Womack or whether that's Tyson Helton at Western Kentucky or, or somebody else, these are the decisions Indiana is going to have to make because the Big Ten is about to change very much and the hole out of which you need to dig is only going to get deeper. So I'm just very curious how Indiana is going to view football as a priority. I think that question is going to be asked for a lot of schools. You know, what are what are you going to do? These these jobs are going to get even harder and they're already hard jobs. Uh, going to be a big like existential question facing a lot of these programs. Uh, so that's going to be an interesting one. Real quick before we wrap up this segment, Chris, uh, give me a read on Houston and Dana Holgerson. Yeah, I mean, Dana Holgerson told our our Sam Cod before the season that uh, he didn't think he was going to get fired, that his buyout's too big or whatever. But there were whispers last December that that Houston might make a change. They didn't make a change. And now Houston is, I think, two and three this year. And it's just outside of one kind of one good year, Daniel Holgerson hasn't done anything of note at Houston, at a program that, remember, when when they fired uh, Major Applewhite or, or hired him, whichever one it was, they said, like, winning eight games or whatever, like, isn't enough at this place. They have high expectations at this place. And so Houston is off this week. They play West Virginia on Thursday, next Thursday, October 12th. Again, a team that people predicted to finish last in the Big 12. And then a week after that, on a Saturday, October 21st, they play Texas. That is the game that everybody has been looking forward to at Houston ever since Houston was going to go to the Big 12. And if you get if you lose to West Virginia and get blown out by Texas, I would keep an eye on, on it at that point um, because that Texas game means a lot to everybody there. And if they're not competitive in this one chance that they have to play Texas and to play Texas at home, it may be a point where there's enough big money people around that program that want to make a change, which would be a pretty big buyout. I don't have the exact number in front of me, but uh, that is a place to keep an eye on over the next month for sure. Absolutely. We'll wrap things up on that note. It is time for the last call. 
We always end the show by cheersing or jeersing to something. It's really whatever mood you're in as the bar is closing and you want one more drink. You can celebrate something, you can rant about something. Um, I got a good rant slash rave, so I'm going to end on that. So I'm going to let you go first, Chris, with your last call. I'm giving a cheers to Fresno State and Wyoming, which are getting the Big Fox treatment on Saturday night. I think it's a 7 o'clock Eastern, I think. I don't know exactly, but that's Big Fox's night game. They're going to do Fresno State-Wyoming, a very big Mountain West game. Fresno State is 5-0. and Mikey Keene at quarterback. I'm sorry, it's at 8 o'clock Eastern uh, on Fox. Uh, Fresno State's 5-0. and Mikey Keene has been really good at quarterback. Their defense is top five in stop rate, uh, as our Max Olson pointed out. Wyoming beat Texas Tech in overtime, battled with Texas. They're four and one. I just think it's really cool that a group of five conference, the Mountain West, is getting that spotlight on the Big Fox. So there's not really many big games going on that night, so everybody should uh, watch it. All right. Love that. Celebrate that. Uh, Both those teams are fun to watch and having great years. My last call is a cheers slash jeers for the pettiness, which I love so much in college sports. Um, The specific pettiness around the Red River rivalry game. I have to say it so slow so I don't mess it up. Uh, Brett Yormark, the Big 12 commissioner, is not attending this game, which I don't think is terribly surprising considering his remarks. What was that a couple weeks ago where he told Texas Tech that he hoped that they would be playing (laughs) uh, or that they would beat Texas. So he's clearly, you know, said that he's rooting against the teams that are leaving. These are those two teams. They both look pretty good. He might have to hand a trophy to one of these teams when all is said and done. So he's mm-hmm. not going to Oklahoma, Texas. But the new commissioner who is adding them to the SEC next year is coming. And that is Greg Sankey. So I appreciate all of the pettiness involved in all of this. I appreciate the not coming. I appreciate Sankey deciding to go because they are his schools coming. And I, honestly, the, the commissioners have been all traveling to visit their new members a lot. So that part is not not surprising. So cheers to both commissioners for making this decision. I respect it and I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, I can't say I'm surprised that Yormark wouldn't be going to this one. Uh, he is definitely persona non grata in Austin with those comments that he made. But look, I, 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 as someone who will be there, I'm curious if Greg Sankey will talk to media. Sometimes he does when he attends games. But the press box at the Cotton Bowl Stadium is incredibly small. Like, it's an old stadium. They haven't updated it in forever because it only hosts a couple of games a year. There's two different levels of media press boxes. So I'll be out, I'll be on the lookout for Greg Sankey as well. And who knows? Maybe Sankey will take in a, a fried fireball shot or a, a fried oatmeal pie or something like that. Please, and we can all just have some fun. Please go find that. Please go make him have the fried fireball shot. I would pay good money to see that. I hope everyone enjoys the uh, state fair and the game and hopefully it is an awesome one cannot wait wanted to thank all of you for listening for tuning in to power hour chris and i really appreciate it another reminder to be sure that you're following the until saturday podcast feed wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll be notified when new episodes are up we always appreciate five star ratings and reviews hit that subscribe button on our youtube channel and join us every thursday saturday and sunday on our live streams Subscribe to the Until Saturday newsletter. And that'll do it for Chris Benini. I'm Nicole Auerbach. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>